Do balance sheets matter? Do cash flows matter? In a world where asset prices are driven primarily by liquidity rather than fundamentals, the answer can appear to be no. But in this world, balance sheet shenanigans are an even greater risk because companies are even more incentivized to try and pull a fast one on investors. So today, I want to speak to Steve Clapham, who's one of the best forensic accountants in the world. Steve is going to walk us through how investors can spot the various tricks that companies try and pull on investors in their financial statements. Without further ado, here's my chat with Steve Clapham. Steve, great to have you on Forward Guidance. Welcome to BlockWorks. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm speaking to you from uh, actually dry and quite sunny but cold London. And um, life is good. How's things with you? Uh, things are going well, Steve. This is my third podcast, uh, Forward Guidance. It's sort of a macro show. Today on the third episode, we're going a little bit more micro. You know, the world of stocks, of asset prices, so often driven by liquidity, by what's going on, you know, on the macro level, interest rates and the like. But today, Steve, I want to delve into the micro with you, the specifically what's going on in companies' balance sheets, their cash flows, their earnings, their depreciations, all this stuff, this forensic accounting, um, as you call it, that is terrifically important to the actual goings-on of the company rather than just sort of you know whether it's the stock is being lifted higher or lifted lower by, by the macro situation. So, Steve, you're a forensic accountant. You've been a partner at you know, $2 billion hedge funds. And you are the founder of Behind the Balance Sheet. Tell us, what is forensic accounting and how does it differ from maybe the traditional sort of fundamental stock analysis? Well, I mean, I don't think it is different. I mean, I think it's an inherent, integral part of stock analysis. Because at the end of the day, if you don't understand the numbers, then you don't understand the company. And, you know, I mean, obviously, we've been in this sort of daft market where valuations don't matter and... The numbers don't matter and it's just while we're in a market where nobody cares what the fundamentals of the business is it's a good business and it'll be bigger in five years time then you know what i do doesn't really count for anything but i can guarantee you that in the long run the companies that are cooking the books the companies that are cheating companies that are massaging their numbers will you know have very bad days and we've seen it very recently, actually a classic example of this is the Hutt Group in the UK. So the Hutt Group came to the stock market a few months ago. Everybody loves it. SoftBank have you know, bought stock and the option to buy 20% of one of their subsidiaries and the stock was going to the moon. And I mean, to my particular amusement, the, the chief executive is rarely pictured with his with a jacket on or even with a shirt on his favorite pose is bare chest right my friends at the analyst in london wrote a note about it pointing out that you know there was a lot of hope and hype around the stock and the shares fell by i don't know 40 50 percent in a week not on very much volume but this is the this is the sort of market we're in where there isn't actually anything you know supporting these many of these share prices. And if you do not do the detailed analysis of the financials of the numbers, then you're at risk of losing significant amounts. So the point about this isn't that you need to do this for every single company, but the ones that you do need to do it for, if you haven't done it, you'll lose your shirt as the chief executive has, both metaphorically and literally, um, because he's got a lot of stock and he's borrowed on margin against his stock and he's lost huge amounts of money. Um, if you don't understand the numbers, my philosophy is, you know, start with the numbers. And if the numbers don't make sense or don't add up, then stay away. So Steve, what are the red flags that you see to avoid a company like the Hutt Group. T tell us about the Hutt Group. What was the red flags there? And then we can talk about the other alarm signals that, that you can see uh, as a forensic accountant. Well, the, I mean, the, the Hutt Group just, um, you know, isn't making any money. I mean, you know, in common with many of the most darling stocks in S&P, you know, the, the more money you lose, the higher the valuation and the higher the higher the capitalization. There's a hell of a lot of companies out there that are just spraying money 
about in the hope that they'll get some market share and they'll end up bust. Loads of the electric vehicle stocks, I mean, that is a sector which I think is just laughable. You know, we could have an argument, we could do a whole show on Tesla and, you know, how much is the option value of having a million vehicles collecting data um, worth in the long term. I mean, you know, I, I figure that if I wanted to and I had enough money, I could pay a lot of drivers a hundred bucks to plant a data recorder in their in their vehicle. And I'd pretty soon have two million vehicles gathering data. I think it's that, you know, it's not a huge insurmountable barrier. But electric vehicle market is a classic instance of that, of, of this. But on the Hutt group specifically, they had this hilarious explanation of how they moved from a 573 million pound loss to a 150 million adjusted EBITDA. It, it was just garbage, you know. They, uh, they said that um, the cost of building new warehouses and cutting over from one warehouse to another was, a, was an add back item. Well, you know, every logistics company, and the Hutt Group isn't an internet stock, it's a logistics company. I mean, it's got an internet element to it, but it's it's advertising itself as the sort of the nuts and bolts of the internet, you know, being able to deliver a product. A bit like Amazon's third-party marketplace. And um, in order to have a business like that, you need to have warehouses. And every time you move warehouse, or open a bigger warehouse, you have, you know, parallel running costs. And they were adding back all these costs to their adjusted EBITDA. And I said, well, you know what? If you're a growth business, uh, you will have to keep adding new warehouses and you always have startup costs. You know, every time you open a new warehouse, well, what happens? You've got to open the warehouse, you've got to stock it, you've got to recruit people, you've got to train them. So every, you know, every new warehouse involves some startup costs and no other logistics company in the world that I've ever looked at has, has not included that in their numbers. They were including it as a one-time charge rather than a recurring cost. Yeah, yeah. And it's clear, you know, it's obviously a recurring item. But there's a, I mean, there, there's yeah. a huge, I, I've forgotten that all the lines, I mean, there were a dozen different elements, all beautifully explained in detail in the annual report. And I did a, a video on it. Just Google behind the balance sheet, the hot group. You'll find that, that video. And I mean, I, I, I just, I just picked up the newspaper and there was this article about the Hutt Group. And the following day, when I went into the office, I picked up the accounts and I opened the account. I thought, this is just nonsense. And so I just did a quick video on it. But I, I take issue with you because you say, you know, what I do is only good for avoiding losers. I, I don't think that's, that's true. I mean, yes, look, avoiding losers, if you can avoid losers or limit the losers, you'll do very, very well. But I also think, you know, understanding the financial quality of a business is an integral part of doing the valuation. Because if a company's not reporting accurate numbers, you should be paying less money for it. So, you know, yes, on the one, you know, on the left field, you'll hopefully avoid, you know, some frauds or blow-ups or, you know, companies that are managing earnings. But also, you know, in the growth companies, you'll be able to value them more precisely because you'll know the ones that are good and the ones that aren't so good. I'd much rather pay up for a company, you know, a company like Microsoft that's got, you know, they do stupid things like buying, paying $26 billion for LinkedIn. You know, I can't even begin to imagine why they haven't been pilloried for that. But, you know, Satya Nadella walks on water and 26 billion here, 26 billion there, you know, when you're that when you're capitalized at, you know, trillions, who cares? But in actual fact, you know, $26 billion, you do that every so often. I mean, that's, you know, soon that's up. But the thing about Microsoft is that its accounts are very high quality. You know, it doesn't fudge the numbers. You would want to pay more for a Microsoft than you would for somebody that was more aggressive. And so I think it's an essential building block if you're going to look at companies seriously. Right, so you have a series of, informal checklist and if if the company passes all of your checklist that is say hey this is a company that is worth paying up for whereas if the company has a lot of of red flags that are, are being checked 
then uh, it could be dodgy, something not worth investing in, something to short. One of the red flags you said uh, was the Hut Group. They were saying recurring charges as a one-time expense. So like if I was a fashion company, when I, if, I, if I buy threads, I'm clearly going to have to buy threads every quarter. But if I put those threads as a charge off, as a one-time expense rather than a recurring charge, then that would inflate my EBITDA. So that's one one red flag. What are some other sort of jiggery-pokery uh, things that you see in your forensic analysis? I've got three main things I look at. The first is margins. So is the company making margins that are similar to its peers? Or if they're higher than peers, is there a good reason for that? You know, in every sector, there will always be a company that's making the highest margins. And so you've got to just understand why that is. Good example would be something like Ryanair, which makes exceptional margins despite having very, very low prices. But when you look into Ryanair, you begin to understand because Michael O'Leary is a despot and he is ruthless about cost control. I mean, in the early days of the company, his memos used to, you know, I mean, half amuse and half alarm the staff. When I first started following it, I went out and I had a, a meeting with Michael Colley, who was then the chief operating officer. And he, he sort of laughed, you know, in that sort of, you know, lovely Irish way. And he said, oh, Michael, if you're traveling on company business, you have to take the pens from the hotel room to save on stationary costs. And he put, sent around the memo, famous memo in, within Ryanair, banning people from charging their mobile phones in the office because the, the, it was Ryanair's electricity. And, um, you know, that sort of extreme cost control, you know, that was, it wasn't, he wasn't worried about the cost of electricity, but he was worried about implanting a message in the, everyone's mind that they should be, you know, fixated about every penny of cost. And so you could understand why the margins looked crazy, but they, they, there was a reason behind them. In contrast to that, the example I always give is Patisserie Valerie, which is a small chain of UK tea shops. So where you go to have afternoon tea, as we like to have in England. So if you don't have enough money to go to the Ritz, which is about, you know, it's a hundred bucks for tea, if you don't have the champagne for two, then um, you go to Patisserie Valerie, which is one of their branches was just next door to the Ritz. And um, Patisserie Valerie's margins were 15%. And their nearest, all their peers in the UK restaurant sector were between five and eight. And you just look at that, you think, well, how could they possibly make margins which were twice their peers? It's just not possible. You know, there's a very high, there's a very high gross margin on products like coffee and tea, but it wasn't sufficient to make a difference, make that much of a difference. So the first check to always do is to look at the margins. The second thing that I look at, I look at the conversion of earnings into cash. And this is quite a technical thing, but you you know it's it, it, it's not that difficult to do. But um, look at how much of the earnings, or I, I generally look at how much of the EBIT, the operating profits, are converted into cash flow. And if you're not generating cash, then the chances are your numbers aren't right. You know, obviously each sector is different, and you need to look at a company in the context of its sector and what type of business it is, and so on. But this is before any working capital or anything like that. So if you look at those metrics and you think, well, the company's not generating any cash, that's not a good signal. And it's not going to, you know, the company might look great and might have a fantastic share price, but it's not going to make you any money in the long run. It needs to generate cash. And the third measure that I look at is working capital ratios. And in particular, the ratio of trade receivables to sales and the ratio of inventory to sales. And if you have rising receivables to sales, it generally means that you're doing something to bring your sales forward. And it's a classic, it's a classic indicator of a company that's cheating, engaged in earnings management or engaged in fraud. But even if it's not engaged in some form of earnings management fraud, if your customers aren't paying you, there's usually a problem. So, you know, if you've got rising trade receivables, that's usually a bad signal. 
And similarly, if you've got rising inventory relative to sales or relative to the cost of goods sold, that's usually a problem because what it usually indicates is either bringing sales forward, fabricating sales, or simply that the customers don't want your product and you've got too much stock. So, you know, whichever way you look at it, it's a sign of trouble. So, you know, those are the three indicators beyond the sort of adjusted earnings number that I tend to, to focus on. Mm. T- talk to me about that working capital. What is working capital? And then, you know, is there an example uh, of working capital that you think illustrates this phenomenon? Perhaps, perhaps Amazon? So, look, working capital is simply, uh, well, the way I think of it, I, I talk about the collection cycle. And the collection cycle is you take the trade receivables as a day's sales, the inventory as day's sales, less the trade payables as day's sales. So it's really the amount that you your customers owe you, the amount of money you've got tied up in stock, less the amount you can draw on your suppliers by not paying your suppliers immediately. And working capital for most companies is positive. For a few industries, it's negative. So for example, if you look at a supermarket, it doesn't have much in the way of trade receivables because the only receivables are the money that it's waiting for the credit card company to pay. So those are tend to be very small. Its inventories are actually not that large relative to sales because inventory turns over every day, right? So they've got a very fast, you know, supermarkets, they turn over their shelves very quickly. And the, the payables, they tend to take quite a lot of credit from their suppliers. So if you think about a supermarket, it opens a new store. It has the cost of the lease up front. It's got the cost of fitting out the store. But then when you look at the working capital that's involved, they just need to fill the shelves. They fill the shelves on day one. They won't pay their supplier, whoever gave them the products, for a minimum of 30 days and usually 60 days. But the day that they open the store, which is usually the day after they stock the shelves, the day they open the store, people come in and pay them cash. So they've got a negative collection cycle, which will be minus 40 days. So if as they grow, their cash goes up because the money they've received from their customers ends up in cash and they don't yet pay, they don't pay their suppliers for another 30, 60 days. So that's the, that's the idea of working capital. For most businesses, if you're Tesla making cars, for example, I don't know how long it takes Tesla to, to, to build a car, but I imagine it's quite some, some time. And you need a whole lot of buffer stock. So you might re- receive the, the inventory, the raw material inventory, and before it ends up as a car and going out the going out of the factory, it might be, I don't know, 15, 20 days. So you've got 20 days of inventory, raw materials, but you've got a whole lot of buffer inventory because you, you, know, you need to have more stock than the one for the one car. You've got, in the case of Tesla, very cleverly, you have to pay for the car a week before you, you, you receive it. So they've got, I mean, last time I looked, they had a billion dollars on the balance sheet, which was cash they'd received from customers, which was a week's sales. There'll be a lot more than that now, I imagine. And um, of course, again, they're paying their suppliers down the road. But the, you know, if you've got a manufacturing business, you'll tend to have receivables. So your customers won't pay you for 30, 60 days. You'll tend to have inventory. So you might have 30 days of inventory or 60 days of inventory. And you might not pay your suppliers for 30 days or 45 days. But you end up with, you know, 15, 30, 50, 70 days of inventory. I mean, I, you know, I've seen company of, of networking capital. I've seen companies with 100 days of networking capital. And that is money that you need to make a return on. You know, it's the same as, it's not the same as fixed assets, but it's, you know, you've got your fixed assets and your working capital represent the capital of the business. Mm. Let's go back to the second uh, sort of act the red flag you see which is the uh the income looks good but the cash flow is not so much why is it a lot easier to fake a net income than it is to fake a cash flow and then when you say a cash flow are you looking at the operating cash flow 
And then if the operating cash flow isn't there, how do companies make it into the, the net income look good? What are they doing on the, uh, the, the financing cash flow and the investing cash flow in order to make up for that lack of money coming through the door? Well, I mean, there's all sorts of techniques companies can use to fabricate sales and profits. And if they're not supported by cash, then you need to be worried. I mean, there's many, many ways that companies can do that. If you were a customer of mine, and I wanted to, you know, improve the behind the balance sheet's results for the year. Um, this is a good time for me to do it because my year end is the 30th of October, 31st of October. All I would do is, that the, you know, today, the 1st of November, I would produce an invoice, Jack Farley, $100,000, put it in my accounts, tell my accountant, oh yeah, Jack's going to pay me next month. I'd forgotten to bill him, so I put in the invoice that I only... I drew it up on 1st of November, but I'm putting the date as 31st of October. I know that's a Sunday, but don't worry about it. And <laughs> hey, I've got $100,000 of extra sales. I've got $100,000 of extra profit because I, I don't have any costs associated with those sales. And um, I've got $100,000 sitting in my balance sheet as a receivable. As a receivable. And would that go through the investing cash flow or the financing? That's the thing. I mean, it would be it would be showing his operating profit, but there would be no cash. You're not paying me anything. But you're going to pay me. You're going to buy me a drink, right? Of course, of course, Steve. When I visit you in London uh, at the Digital Asset Summit uh, at Blockworks um, in in November. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Steve, I know you've got other companies on your radar. Whether it's it's Netflix, Vodafone, Doc Martens, Ferrari. Uh, what are some other companies that you really have dug into the balance sheet and you've done the, the work that you have? You know, my view is that the role of the Southside Analyst has been significantly juniorized over the last 10 years. We've seen that particularly in Europe with the advent of MIFID II, which was a regulatory change, which effectively resulted in many, if not most, fund managers paying for research provided by the banks out of their own P&L. And rather than the fund paying it, they're paying it out of their own pockets, they're going to pay a lot less for it. And as a consequence of that, the overall pool of research commissions has fallen very significantly in Europe. And, you know, as a consequence of that, these are profit-making businesses. The banks have decided that they need less senior analysts. And they juniorized all the roles. And so the poor sell side guys, they are, you know, a lot of them are sort of ex-accounting. So they've, you know, they've graduated from university, done an accounting degree, and they then walk into bulge bracket research department and start writing research on companies. Well, I can absolutely guarantee you that the one thing you won't learn in a firm of accountants is how to analyze a company. So um, the, the sell side role has been really juniorized and therefore any, anybody with you know, a little bit of analytical skill should be able to do quite well and pick up things that the sell side haven't. But I mean, you know, I, haven't. I do three things. I do, I've got an online training school for private investors. I do institutional training for, so, you know, big, big um, institutions. I help their analysts improve their skills. And I do bespoke research. And the bespoke research I do for a small group of institutional clients, I tend not to publish that. You know, if you pay me to go and look at a stock for you, I don't tend to make that available. I mean, occasionally, uh, we did last year with the forensic accounting report on the big five Chinese internet stocks, the client allowed me to publish that and we sold it for $5,000 uh, a report. But, you know, I, all that information is quite sensitive and quite valuable. And so I tend not to publish too much about it. So the stuff that I do in the blogs is more fun stuff. So like Ferrari, I, I, I just looked at Ferrari because I, I met this guy, really smart guy, um, another Londoner, Michael, who had just taken over running uh, 250 million pounds, so 350 odd million dollar fund. 
And he put 7% of the fund into Ferrari. And I said, that seems very daft to me at this price. And he goes, oh, no, no. It's and he sent me, you know, he sent me his thing about his, the letter that he'd written to his clients saying what a great company Ferrari was. And, you know, there was one thing that I really agreed with. The Ferrari are bringing out an SUV next year. I've forgotten the name of it. It's quite a difficult to pronounce Italian name. But uh, they've got pictures of it on their website. It's a red SUV. And, you know, if you're in China, then you you like to be driven rather than drive yourself. It's a, you know, a very Asian thing to be um, to be driven rather than drive yourself. So you could understand why a Ferrari SUV would be incredibly popular. And the same way as the Aston Martin SUV was incredibly popular. Interviewed on the BBC Radio 4 Today programme with 7 million listeners about the impending Aston Martin IPO, they said, well, you know, how do you think it will go? We, and I'd spent, you know, 10 minutes talking about how the accounts were crooked and how the company wasn't raising any money and that was a stupid IPO. And I thought, well, you know, I think, I think the company will probably do reasonably well because <laughs> they're bringing out an SUV and there's all these rich, fat, old businessmen who can't get into an Aston Martin and they'll just buy the SUV instead. And um, Ferrari will be the same because there's lots of big fat men who can't fit in a Ferrari or, you know, they're quite difficult to get in and out of. And so an SUV will look better and you know, easier to, to, to drive every day. Personally, I think it's a travesty that Ferrari, Luca de Montesimulo, who was the old chairman, said that Ferrari would never build an SUV because of the, you know, he would be, feel that he was a traitor to the brand. And I think you know, they are being a traitor um, to their own brand, their own heritage. And I think it will do them quite a significant amount of damage, but it will help the bottom line to kick off with. But the point I made in my blog, and if your viewers or listeners want to read this, you can find the blog on behindthebalancesheet.com on the website. The point I made was a very simple one. First of all, you're paying a very high valuation for Ferrari. It's a very good company. I mean, I was very enthusiastic about it when it came to the stock market. But you're paying the same multiple or a higher multiple than you are for Louis Vuitton. Now, I make no, you know, I don't have any detailed understanding or knowledge of Louis Vuitton. I just made the comparison. I said, look, in 2030, it will no longer be possible for Ferrari to sell petrol engine sports car in this country. Ten years from that, their products will have to be largely electric. And what is the pleasure in owning a Ferrari? Pleasure in owning a Ferrari is opening the garage, taking the cover off it, and looking at this beautiful car, putting the key in the ignition, turning the key, starting it up, and hearing the engine noise. You know, electric cars have got a very different configuration. And so many, many electric cars can look very, very different from conventional internal combustion cars. So the, the styling, the traction is gonna be slightly different. And I believe that noise, you know, electric cars are silent. You know, you just will not get the same pleasure from driving an electric Ferrari, even if, it, even if it's as good. And I can tell you that a Tesla Model S handles every bit as well as most Ferraris. Maybe not, you know, the fastest, highest performance one. one. Having batteries is a complete, completely different game. So the Ferrari's ability to distance itself in terms purely of the product is diminishing. And at the same time, it has to spend a huge amount of money developing its electric capabilities. It has a tremendous cachet from Formula One. Well, do you think Formula One's gonna be here in 10 years? Well, you'd be allowed to drive cars that are consuming fuel at the rates of, I don't know, what a Formula One car's fuel consumption is, but it's certainly under five miles per gallon. Is that gonna be the poster child for Generation Z? I don't think so. So, you know, they, maybe they'll be able to sell clothes with a Ferrari label. Good luck. I mean, you know, not at this market cap. So I just made a simple point that 
you know, I had this discussion with Michael and, and he said, oh no, you know, they're, they're developing electric technology and, you know, they'll be at the forefront of that. And they've got the, all the Formula One knowledge from using the electric motors in, in, in F1. Tesla's valued at a trillion dollars. Obviously, you know, people believe that it's electric technology, it's AV technology are worth a lot and that it'll be difficult to replicate. Well, you know, I'm not saying the Tesla's worth a trillion dollars. I don't think that's right. But I don't think it's going to be quite as easy for Ferrari to compete with Tesla with an electric car. Much easier to compete with petrol car that can do 200 miles an hour, that kicks you in the back and carries on kicking you in the back, you know, at very, very high speeds in a way that an electric car simply today cannot. But in 10 years' time, you know, you'll probably be able to drive a Tesla that when you drive it at 120 miles an hour and put your foot down, it will kick you in the back in the way that a Ferrari can. Earlier, Steve, you alluded to that there's an incredible amount of excess in the electric vehicle space. What did you mean by that? Do you think there's an oversupply of, of capital uh, that will you know, meet demand and then some, and that, that, that will be sort of be a bubble that will burst? You know, what are you seeing when you look at the balance sheets of, let's say, a NIO, a, a Volkswagen, the old OEMs like GM or Ford, and then, of course, the Tesla as well, not to mention the SPACs like Lucid Motors, Lord, Lord Town, and, and the like? I don't know what the whole EV sector is valued at. I mean, when you add in the NIOs and the Lucids and the Nikolai, I mean, you know, they're all worth, you know, 20, 30, 40 billion dollars. I mean, some of them will be successful. I mean, I happen to I happen to think that Lucid, the Lucid looks a very attractive car. I mean, I've not seen one in, in the flesh, but I've talked to um, one of the people that was involved with it early on when they were raising private capital and I looked at it. But, um, and you know, the, they've got a lot of the former Tesla engineers. So, you know, it's probably going to be, uh, you know, product-wise, a good competitor to the Model S. But, you know, it's one thing having a good product. You've got to make it and you've got to sell it. And that's, you know, those are huge challenges. And the simple fact of the matter is that the global automotive industry, last time I looked was 2016, 2017. It's quite a lot of work to do, this, to do the maths. But last time I looked, their R&D, annual R&D spend was $80 billion. I can guarantee you that none of those electric vehicle manufacturers, including Tesla, have spent a fraction of that. Yes, I mean, you know, Elon Musk is a genius, but, you know, it's a lot easier to copy somebody else. And, you know, all these companies have got very, very significant R&D firepower. So it just daft to think that Daimler, Mercedes, Volkswagen, BMW, Audi, Porsche, these German manufacturers won't produce brilliant electric vehicles. So I just think it, it, it's ludicrous to assume that the incumbents won't respond and that the new um, disruptive arri arrivals will win up. Because guess what? Many of these companies, you know, Ford Motor Company has been around for over 100 years. To assume that it won't be able to compete, I think, is, is unrealistic. Steve, uh, I don't disagree with you, by the way, but just to play devil's advocate, like looking at the balance sheet of Ford or GM, they've got these huge liabilities, you know, monstrous amount of debt. I think Ford is one of the most indebted companies in the S&P 500. And then they have... Uh, liabilities for for the pension plans because you know these companies are so old when they they have uh, you know many 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 billions of dollars of obligations to pensioners who used to work at Ford and by the way these pension plans assumed an eight percent return when now you know with bond yields at you know one and a half percent or something like that it's 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 much less likely that they're going to be able to actually earn that what do you think about the argument that hey Tesla can secure a cost of capital that's very low because it doesn't have, you know, these, uh, you know, bloated obligations. Oh, and by the way, equity investors love it. Its cost of capital is incredibly low. It gives it a massive advantage in the capital intensive industry, no question. And sure, you know, Ford and GM have got, you know, huge pension funds, huge deficits, and the medical, medical um, post-retirement medical care um, commitments, liabilities, on, on top of it. So they've got very, very significant liabilities. 
So um, what do you think the U.S. government is going to think about, you know, a Ford or General Motors being in financial difficulty and all these pensioners being at risk because the pension is not fully funded? I think the, you know, the, the U.S. government is going to be quite nervous about that, isn't it? I would agree, but I think that the stock would, might have to go to one dollar before before that happens. Well, I, I, I'm sorry, you you forgive me. I wasn't I wasn't recommending Ford or General Motors as a you know as a better bet than Tesla. I was simply pointing out that it would be foolish to assume that because Tesla's valued at a trillion dollars, that it's automatically going to end up with thirty percent of the of the global automotive market. I would think that it'd be highly unlikely that it would end up with anything like that. It might be the most efficient and most advanced electric vehicle producer today, and there's no question that they've done a brilliant job. Have they done a trillion dollars worth of brilliant job? I don't think so. Automotive manufacturer will remain a capital-intensive, low-margin business because there is too much capacity in the world. And guess what? Every vehicle manufacturer looking at Tesla saying, oh man, if we were an EV, we would get, you know, Polestar. What was the Polestar valuation? I think it was $30 billion. Lucid, $30 billion or $40 billion. I mean, uh, you know, the, the very success of Tesla is encouraging a whole load of venture capitalists to throw huge amounts of money into this area. I mean, most of these, most of these companies may not survive, but you know, what we're, the one thing we're not doing is reducing global automotive capacity. And we had an excess of automotive capacity before Tesla arrived in the scene, before we started driving electric cars. And as far as I can see, the only thing that's happened is that we've got even more capacity. Yeah, we've had, you know, Fiat getting together with Peugeot, we've had Peugeot buying Opel, but I haven't seen, you know, a massive reduction in the in the production capacity of these businesses. They've taken out some, taken taken out some factories, but you know, for every factory they've taken out, there's been a new startup, and these new startups are going to be building cars. You know, common sense tells you that there's a hell of a lot more capital employed in the automotive industry today than there was five years ago. And there was there was too much capacity five years ago. We've got a lot more capital in the industry. We've got uh, hope that electric vehicles will be more profitable than normal vehicles. Might be in 10 years time, possible. A lot less moving parts. The batteries have become quite expensive and we've yet to see a significant um, evolution in the, in, in the design. I mean, you know, they're inherently expensive. And although they're probably a bit less expensive than they were and a lot better in terms of their charging ability and range and power and all the rest of it. But the actual cost of sticking the battery in the car, I doubt it's moved very significantly. Just, you know, the battery itself does more and probably it hasn't gone up, hasn't gone up in price, maybe gone down a bit in price, but will, will you make a lot of money selling electric vehicles? I doubt it. Mm. Steve, what changes have you seen uh, since the huge sell-off uh, in March 2020 due to the, the COVID lockdowns, and then uh, the you know dramatic uh, surge in leverage, the number of shares? So companies were issuing debt as well as equity in order to fund their operations and grow their operations. Since then, we've seen earnings prove uh, remarkably robust. Uh, all-time highs, in fact, on the, the S&P 500 uh, and, and in Europe a, a, as well. But, but when you actually look at the balance sheets, the fact that these airline companies and all, all of these companies have issued a tremendous amount of debt as well as a tremendous amount of, of new shares. I actually think there's a chart from Ed Yardini showing that uh, the seasoned offerings of, of equities uh, is at an all-time high. How does that change the uh, risk-reward to shareholders in the long term? That's a good question. I'm not sure that I have a very good answer to it. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I have to confess, I'm slightly surprised at the strength of earnings. Um, and it's not what I would have assumed would, would happen because, you know, we're in an inflationary environment. 
And what generally happens in an inflationary environment is it's quite difficult to pass on the cost increases. So you get all these increases in your costs and it's difficult to pass them on. And I think maybe we're in a sort of interregnum where companies, you know, if you're an automotive company, there's huge demand for your products and therefore you can, you know, you can get price through. Um, I think, you know, when, because we've got all these supply chain issues and all these shortages, people are less inclined to worry about the price and they're just inclined to worry about the delivery. But certainly the issue of, of shortages means that companies have got a lot more pricing power. Now, will that carry on? I, I don't know that it will. I mean, my experience of inflation as regards stock market is very limited because you, you, know, you need to be even older than I am and I'm very old. And um, common sense tells you that inflation tends to make life more difficult for most companies. There are some companies that have got really strong pricing power where they're able to pass on cost increases and it's not so much of an issue. But for many companies, it becomes an issue and you, you end up getting margin squeezed because you get the cost increases and before you can pass it on. And um, I'd be surprised if this, the margin expansion continues. Um, at the same rate. I mean, you know, um, but then, you know, I would have said, if you asked me this six months ago or nine months ago, I've said the same answer, so you shouldn't necessarily believe me. But, um, you know, we're in an economic recovery. Many people have got cash in their pockets because they haven't been out spending. Many people have got cash in their pockets because they've made more money from the government than they would going to work. And again, they haven't been able to spend it. So, you know, when we come and 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 of course there's this you know tremendous built up propensity to to spend to go on holiday to go out for a drink to go meet friends to go and do an activity so you know that that could last another 12 months but i think what i found very surprising was 6 months ago i was looking at the cruise stocks and i said well, why is carnival valued more highly than it was pre-COVID. The share price was, it had gone down, it halved. But they'd issued a lot more stock and it issued a ton of debt. And the enterprise value was like a billion higher than it was pre-COVID, something like that. So 30, 35 billion, forgotten exactly what the numbers were. First of all, you've got a company that's hugely more leveraged. So it's hugely riskier. Second of all, we don't know what the propensity to cruise will be. Yeah, there's some pent-up demand. People want to go and ship. But say we've got another variant, another virus variant, that you know people might not want to go cruising again. Because remember those pictures of that ship, the, was that a carnival ship or a P&O ship in Japan? Yeah, the Diamond Princess. Horrifying documentary about it on HBO. Yeah, there's a P&O yeah. yeah, yeah. ship, yeah. So, you know, that isn't very good for sales. And, it, you know, I don't know what the, the probability of that is. I don't know what, you know, it's impossible to quantify the risk, but you know that there's a risk, right? It's not, you know, it, it might only be a quarter of a percent, but yeah, there, there's some risk there. The fact the stock's much more in, indebted, the, the cost of fuel has gone, you know, has gone up. Tremendously, and you know, cost in of labor last, in the last eighteen months. You know, this is another symptom of stupid market, crazy market. So you know, GameStop, Carnival is another. You know, a less extreme but similar sort of daft valuation being applied to an inherently much more risky company. So you know, you can say, well, money's cheaper, and therefore, you know. A rising tide lifts all boats, if I can use that pun, but um, I, I thought that was that. Now, the shares have come off quite significantly since, but I'm, you know, I'm still not like, why should it be valued like this? I'm still, you know, asking myself. Uh, Steve, another sector that reminds me of the cruise lines is the airline sector. They too have had to 
borrow a lot of money, issue some shares as well in order to fund their operations. And it looks like their long-term viability is going to be hampered by COVID-19, particularly business travel, which was the most uh, profitable sector, uh, business line, I should say. You're an expert. You know, you've done a lot of work on airlines over the years. To what degree do you think that uh, the airline sector is less attractive than it was pre-COVID, or do you actually see a value opportunity? Well, I mean, the, the valuations aren't as cheap as I would have thought they would get to. Um, I think, you know, unquestionably, there's an impact in business travel. There must be. I think you'll be surprised at the extent, the degree of recovery in business travel, because once people start to travel, there is no substitute for a meeting in person. Yeah, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the conferences, people will go, oh, you know, I'll just watch it online because I can't really be bothered. So for sure there'll be an impact. But that that sales meeting is it's a lot more powerful in person than it is on Zoom. I'll give you an example of that. Um, today I had lunch with Patrick Jenkins, at the who's the deputy editor of the Financial Times. So I was in the city, I was in the city of London for that. And a, a new client had got in touch with me. Um, and I said, and they, they're based in the city. And I said, well, I'm going to be in the city for lunch. Would you like me to come around to the office rather than doing it on Zoom? And they said, oh yeah, that'd be fantastic. And we had a great, I mean, this is a, a client I don't know, I've not met before. And we had a cup of coffee, we ended up you know, an hour and a quarter conversation. And it was a really nice, warm, detailed conversation where I really learned about their business and what they were trying to achieve. And, you know, so I could tailor a training course specifically for their particular requirements. Now, if that meeting had been on Zoom, I guarantee you it would have been half an hour. But, you know, again, the ability to go and, and interact with your colleagues and competitors and customers and suppliers by going to a trade fair or a conference I mean it's very hard to it's very hard to replicate that on uh, on zoom it's not going to be tomorrow that we're back to pre-covid levels but I, I'm fairly optimistic that there will be a pent-up demand for leisure and be pent-up demand for business sales that will help us over that hump so and I mean, I don't think there's any sort of bargain, obvious bargains in the stock market because of that. And the interesting thing about the airline industry is that, you know, what you would tend to look at here is you've had COVID and therefore a lot of weaker players go to the wall. And that leaves room for the stronger players, the Ryanairs, to, to prosper. But, you know, for every Norwegian air or similar that goes bust, there's going to be somebody else stepping in because the planes aren't going are going away. You know, it's not like a conventional industry where you've got a factory and the factory gets closed down and converted into some other purpose. The plane has got a single purpose, and it, you know, planes don't evaporate, so the planes will come back. And so, you know, we're not going to have a huge um, difference in the long run um, supply demand. Um, relationship and if anything it's probably you know a bit off the demand so but it, you know the supply doesn't disappear so that's that, that's kind of the problem for the airline industry steve you've done a lot of work analyzing uh chinese companies what have you made uh over the crackdown uh from the chinese government on companies like alibaba like tencent not to mention the private education sector uh, and then also, to, to what degree have you done any work on Evergrande, um, the uh, real estate company that is now in, in default? So, you know, what, what do you see when you turn your gaze towards China? Well, funny, I started off writing a blog in Evergrande back in August. And I then, you know, it got so long and so complicated that I ended up, I, I, you know, it's sitting in my work in progress folder, Evergrande. People have kind of missed the point on Evergrande. The point on Evergrande is that it's a massive blow to the Chinese growth story. I mean, I don't believe that the Chinese government will let Evergrande go to the wall because there's too many people who have put down too much money on deposits 
on apartments that have yet to be delivered. But what will happen is that the cost of capital for the, the house builders, for the developers in China, will go up. And their ability to access money will go down. And people's propensity to put down money for an apartment that's going to be delivered two years down the road will diminish. Unless they, you know, just come out and say, everybody Evergrande, you're underwritten by the Chinese government, you don't need to worry, you can all buy a flat, you can all put it out in your deposits tomorrow without any safe, without any concern. Unless they do that, which I doubt they'll do, people's willingness to go and buy an apartment, you know, they buy the apartment, they just leave it empty and wait for it, the price to appreciate. Well, the, the guaranteed price appreciation is probably not as secure. And your ability to get your money back in the form of a finished apartment is a lot less secure because, yeah, the people that put their money down for an Evergrande apartment, they'll probably get it in the end, but they might have to wait quite a bit longer than they'd hoped because, you know, this whole thing would take you know, time to unwind. And the, the reason that's so important is that the, the construction of residential apartments, often purely for speculation, is a foundation of the Chinese economic growth story. It's probably 20, 25% of GDP. So you have the developers will have, find it more difficult to get cash. They'll get, find it more difficult to get cash from the banks and other financing areas. They'll find it more difficult to get cash from people putting down money for apartments. So they'll have less money. So they'll buy less land. The local Chinese municipalities rely on land sales for 40% of their income. Well, if they're selling less land, they'll have less income. So they, in turn, will be less able to finance bridges to nowhere and subways, the additional subway line that they don't need and all the other daft and sometimes highly warranted investments that they've been making that have been another, I don't know how many percent of the Chinese growth story. So China is slowing down. I mean, uh, I think that's a very simple conclusion. And obviously the knock-on from that is that the inherent growth available to the Alibabas of this world will be lower than it was in the past. You know, they'll be less able to grow at their historic rates. Partly because also they're now much, much bigger companies, but simply because the Chinese growth will, will, will be slower. As regards the, you know, the actions of the Chinese government, I mean, the, the actions with regards to education companies, I kind of understand and I'm slightly surprised that they're prepared to throw these companies out the window. But, you know, it shows that the Chinese authorities don't really care that much about the U.S. investor. It's not top of the priority list. That is even makes it onto the first page of the priority list. <laughs> so um, I think you've got to be slightly worried. And obviously, there's a whole issue about when you buy into one of these VIEs, variable interest entities, what are you buying? I think the, the, this, the whole area of Chinese companies in 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 the United States is really under a bit of a shadow. And this question that um, the auditors and ability of the SEC and US regulators to access the audits, well, that's kind of been put on the back burner. But as I understand it, that issue needs to be resolved by next April. And if it's not resolved, then um, my understanding is that the, the US courts could be withdrawn. If that starts to get people worried, then there's quite a lot of, of US money that's going to come out of those stocks. And you've got to ask yourself, well, you know, who, who's going to replace it? Alibaba's at the same price as it was, what, two years ago? And it's grown in the meantime. And the valuation, you know, if you look at its performance relative to, say, Amazon, it's been horrible. And, you know, at the end of the day, is it in the interest of the Chinese government to completely screw Alibaba? Well, I don't think it is. I mean, what the Chinese government wants is, you know, global champions, I would imagine. And Alibaba and Tencent have got good opportunities being their global champions. So I, I, I can't see why the Chinese government's interest to screw the companies, you know, a few billion dollars of, of fines and donations has already been extracted. And that seems to me, you know, quite a good 
compromise from the Chinese government's perspective. And, you know, I, I imagine that, you know, things will settle down. But I wouldn't be surprised if there is quite a lot of volatility between, you know, over the next six months, because that whole audit issue needs to be resolved. I don't, I'm not aware of the state of play today. I'm not that, I don't follow it. You know, you need to be close to the US regulators and close to the Chinese regulators, and I'm neither. But um, that would be what I would be looking at. But interesting, you know, Charlie Munger has bought mm -hmm. Alibaba and, you know, a load of people seem to be happy to outsource their investment decisions to a 97-year-old genius who I, I, I couldn't and wouldn't say anything against Charlie Munger. But if it were anybody other than Charlie Munger, you would ask yourself, well, what does he know about Alibaba? I have no idea. I mean, I, you know, the guy is, you know, no question, one of the, yeah. the cleverest people in the investing in the investing world. Steve, I might say, I think you know, you've done a lot of work on these Chinese internet giants. Uh, the the Alibaba annual report is something like 600, 700 pages long. You've written reports on the entire annual report. So I'd say you do know something that the average investor doesn't know about Alibaba. I'd also say Charlie Munger probably does as well. I would back Charlie Munger's reading of the annual report over mine. I mean, I, you know, no question. But, the, you know, there are some there are some major question marks about the accounting of all those five companies. One in particular, where I feel that um, the market has completely missed the the shenanigans that they've been engaged in. But, um, you know, Alibaba has been hit quite badly. Tencent, not quite so much. The part of the hit is the fines. Um, part of the hit is the sentiment. And we'll see what happens over the next six months. I mean, the point I was just trying to make was that there were a lot of people on Twitter saying, Charlie Munger's bought it, so it's all okay. And the stock went up. And then it came back down again. And I don't think we're at the end of that volatility because I think there's more things for people to digest. But in the end, I don't believe that Chinese government will seriously impair the ability of Alibaba and its peers to make money. It might do for, you know, a DD, you know, it's kind of like a side issue. Alibaba and Tencent in particular are, you know, very significant um, pillars of the Chinese internet establishment. And, you know, without them, you know, quite a lot of day-to-day -day processing in China would be, would be much more difficult. And they're employing lots of people that, you know, I just, you know, common sense says that, you know, they might want to wrap Jack Ma on the knuckles. They might want to extract a few fines here and there. They might be prepared to sacrifice U.S. pensioners with their savings in these stocks. All of those things, you know, I can imagine wouldn't be a particular problem for the Chinese authorities. But will Alibaba and Tencent continue to be, you know, core elements of the Chinese society? Well, I, 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 I have no doubt that, that that's the case. They might be, they might not be able to make quite as big a rent out of it, but you know, they're far more entrenched in people's day-to-day -day lives than Amazon is, for example. Steve, as we wrap up, I've got two questions for you. My first is, other than EBITDA and non-GAAP earnings, what accounting practice do you see that is the greatest potential pitfall for investors? And then my second question is, is there a particular sector or a particular company or set of companies where you you put them through your hardest possible accounting test and they come out completely okay, where you say, you know what, your accountants are doing everything right. I like what I'm seeing. Their standards are as pure as, as snow. The answer to the first question is stock-based compensation. And I've written a blog on it um, and behindbalancesheet.com. Actually, a number of professional um, institutional investors have emailed me to say, um, you know, that they found it helpful. Um, I know in the second question, no. There's... Wonderful. Well, Steve, I can't think of a better way to end the interview than that. Uh, Steve Clapham of Behind the Balance Sheet. 
Thank you so much uh, for coming on Forward Guidance. You, by the way, you are the author of the, the Smart Money Method, which I recommend to everyone. And Steve, I hope to see you at the Digital Asset Summit uh, in London on November 15th and 16th of this year. So it will be soon. We, we can get a drink together. I shall look forward to seeing you there. Thank you very much for having me. If you want to get your viewers, listeners, Want to find me, the website's behindthebalancesheet.com. I'm on Twitter, at Steve Clapham. And the podcast is called Behind the Balance Sheet. Wonderful. Steve, thank you so much for being on. And thank you to everyone for watching. Thanks.